Joel called me yesterday early morning, and he said, Aaron, I'm sick. you got to do it all. <laughs> and I said, you're going to get healed fast, Joel. <laughs> of course, he was joking, but uh, we, are, we are thankful, and, and it is a privilege. It's not a burden you know, in a burdenful sense, but it is a privilege to uh, open God's Word and share it with you this morning. Well, the last time I uh, preached to you, we went through a, a series of sermons uh, from John chapter 9, and as I was preparing for this morning, I thought, you know, I never really told him, why, why would we just start right in the middle of the book of John? Why, why did I do that? Um, it's, it's not a very complicated answer. That just happened to be where I was studying reading at the time that we were having these conversations about uh, preaching uh, responsibilities several years ago. And so that's why we were in John chapter 9, kind of out of the blue. Uh, but we're going to take you, we're going to uh, go back to the beginning of John today, uh, leaving John 9 behind. Uh, certainly we gleaned uh, much great information and great truth from that passage uh, specifically the metaphor of sight uh, being used in a spiritual way as God opens spiritually blind eyes to the truth of the gospel and our need for salvation. Uh, there were other great truths from that passage as well. If you'll recall the role of suffering in our lives, uh, how God uses suffering to, uh, to work in us and to draw us closer to himself. Uh, we also saw truths such as the stubbornness of unbelief, uh, the scribes and Pharisees and and their, and their role in that. And then that great, double, uh, that great miracle of double sight uh, being restored to the man that was born blind. How Jesus opened his physical eyes that he might see his surroundings. And how Jesus opened his spiritual eyes that he might see his sin and his Savior. <clears throat> so we're going to go back to the beginning of John today. Back to the beginning of John's gospel account. Uh, this, has been this has been described as one of, the most, one of the profoundest books in the world, and yet it is so simple that a child can understand that, understand it. I hope today to be able to prevent, present uh, por portions of John chapter 1 to you in that way where we understand the profoundness of it and yet the simplicity of it. <clears throat> Before we do that, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we... Uh, Thank you for providing this time that we can be together. We thank you for providing this church building, uh, for vehicles and, and the ease of travel that we enjoy in this country, in this part of Ohio. We praise you for the beautiful weather that we are enjoying today and, and the time that we can be together in your house and in your word. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle John. We thank you for the work that you did in his life and uh, the inspiration that uh, you put into his words to write these things down for us, that we might have copies of them, and that we might learn about the truth of Jesus Christ today. Lord, we pray that we would worship, that we would continue to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray, as, as Joel reminded us, that, we would, um, that our attention would be fully on your word today, and that, uh, that people would not see the messenger, but they would see the message, that they would see our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we thank you for all of your blessings, and especially for this time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, before we start with that, I want to remind us, I want to ask us a question, and I'm going to try to uh, ask us some questions throughout the outline and to give you some, uh, some scaffolding to build your understanding on. 
But the question I'd like to ask first is, how do we know that we can trust John's account of Jesus Christ? How do we know that we can trust John's account? <clears throat> well, we can trust John's account because John was an eyewitness to Christ's miracles and Christ's life. He was an eyewitness to the teachings of Christ throughout his three-year earthly ministry. Let me just remind you of some of the places that we see John in the Gospels and in the context of Christ's ministry. We see the Apostle John at the beginning of Christ's ministry in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus walked along the Sea of Galilee and called these fishermen to follow him. We see John at the miracles of Jesus, seven of those miracles recorded in John's Gospel account, as well as numerous other miracles. We see John at the feeding of the 5,000 uh, in Matthew 16 and also in John chapter 6. We see John at the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew chapter 17. We see John at the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26. We see John at the cross in John chapter 19. Behold your mother and behold your son, as Jesus said to John and to Mary. We see John at the tomb coming to the tomb on that first Sunday, that first day of the week in John chapter 20. We see John later that evening on the first Sunday evening service where the disciples were gathered and Jesus appeared to them, also in John chapter 20. We see John at the breakfast in John chapter 21, and we see him at the ascension in Acts chapter 1. It is well established that G John is a reliable eyewitness to the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see John later in the first century as he writes these books for us, the, the, the gospel account of John, as well as the uh, three short epistles and the book of Revelation. John was specifically an eyewitness, and he wrote from an eyewitness perspective. Consider what John says in his other book, 1 John chapter 1. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was revealed, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now here's John's purpose. Here John's purpose in writing that is stated clearly. So that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John wants his readers to understand the truth, and he wants them to understand the truth of who Jesus really was. John was there when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And this disciple whom Jesus loved heard Peter's definitive words in response to Jesus' questions. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now compare this statement with his stated purpose at the end of his gospel account in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. John says in John chapter 20, So then, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
John makes clear his purpose in writing this account so that the reader will be informed about the facts of Jesus and will come to believe in Jesus. Specifically, this book is written to bring people to understand the true identity of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make a point here as well. Uh, John wants you to not just know Jesus. He wants you to know and then believe in Jesus. Okay? Paul is not sim- or, I'm sorry, John is not simply writing as a biographer. John is writing as an, evan- as an evangelist. He is trying to convince his readers of the deity of Jesus Christ so that they might know and believe in Jesus. Let's turn real quickly to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to take a little detour before we get to John. Go back to Matthew chapter 16. I just want to read this exchange that I just referenced. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13, says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is getting to the root of his identity in terms of what the general population believed about him, and specifically what the disciples understood regarding his identity. Although they walked with him for three years and they observed numerous conversations and miracles, there were still gaps of understanding for the disciples, specifically regarding the resurrection and ascension that we've looked at recently, as John has been preaching about those things. But Jesus asks this most important question in verse 16, who do you say that I am? Now, I want to caution you. Do not consider this essential question from a philosophical perspective or an academic perspective, as if we were sitting in the great lecture hall of our local religion department of our local university. We must consider this essential question. Really, we must each wrestle with this question, and you must understand the significance and the eternal implications of your answer to this question. And so I'm asking each one of us today, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? The disciples indicated that the people said Jesus is just a reincarnation of John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, and Jesus said, who do you say that I am? This is a personal question. Jesus addressed his question to the group of 12, but this is a question on a personal level, you. From the context of scripture, we understand this indicates each individual disciple You is an important pronoun. You is one of my pronouns. My other pronouns are he, but we don't talk about pronouns, okay? (laughs) But you is a personal pronoun. It is important. It means you. You must answer this question. Each one of you, each one of us must answer this question. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
I love Peter's magnificent response. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter says it very succinctly and clearly. Do we believe that truth? Do we believe that truth of what Peter is saying? Uh, Is Jesus the Son of God, the Son of the living God to us, or is he just simply a good teacher? We talked about that last week in Sunday school, didn't we? Aaron, didn't remember? Yeah, we said, is Jesus a good teacher? Well, yes and no. Yes, in a, in a sense, he is, but no, he's not simply a good teacher. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And so as we consider John, the book of John, let's go back there, and let's start to read the first chapter of John with that question and that, that thought fresh in our minds. Who is Jesus to you? And so here we have John presenting Jesus Christ. I'd like to read the first 18 verses of the prologue just to establish that again. And this goes along with the reading that we had this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, as a reminder, we're talking about the Gospel of John. That's a common and traditional designation for the fourth, for the fourth Gospel of our New Testament. But it's more appropriately referred to as the gospel according to John, since it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, witnessed and documented by the Apostle John. And gospel, of course, refers to the good news. And so it is in that sense that we do not understand this as the good news of John, but specifically we understand this as an account of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, we've looked at the prologue today. This first 18 verses that I just read is considered the prologue to John's gospel. That's its uh, designation. Uh, and it is, uh, it's amazing. 
In fact, S. Lewis Johnson says about the first verse, no book ever began more magnificent than the Gospel of John. Let's look at that first verse again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The first five verses of John's, the Gospel according to John, uh, contain several phrases and short statements concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. I submit there are ten, but that's open to a little bit of discussion. Um, we're going to look at the first several phrases at the beginning of the gospel according to John, starting with this phrase, in the beginning. <clears throat> as I noted, this has been described as saying, no book ever began more magnificent than the gospel of John. And indeed, that's true. In the beginning was the word. This phrase, in the beginning, takes us back to the creation and the time before creation when Jesus was already present. John intends a parallel with Genesis chapter 1 here, and he takes us back even before Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, where we see the beginning of time, the beginning of matter, the beginning of space. This is before the laws of thermodynamics were even created. This is Jesus already present before all of that. <clears throat> Compare John's uh, introduction, his gospel, uh, to the introductions in the other gospels. Matthew and Luke, for example, begin at the, uh, they begin in Bethlehem, at the beginning of Jesus's, uh, when he was born as a man. Mark begins his gospel at the Jordan River, <clears throat> but John takes us all the way back. He takes us back before Genesis 1-1. Uh, he reveals Jesus as the eternal, pre-existing Son of God, who became man in order to reveal the Father and bring eternal life through his death and resurrection. <clears throat> John doesn't give us a genealogy either. There's, there's no genealogy here. God doesn't need a genealogy. Uh, it, reminds me of, uh, if, it reminds me of what Doc says to Marty in, um, in Back to the Future at the end of the first movie. Uh, uh, Marty says, aren't we going to run out of road? <clears throat> and what does Doc say to Marty? He says, roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Where we're going with Jesus, we don't need a genealogy because God describes him as being there uh, in the beginning. <clears throat> Jesus preexisted with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from all eternity past. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, as Revelation 22:13 describes him. Now, why do we say preexisting? Why do we use that phrase pre-existing? Well, think about that. We exist in time. I exist in time. We are existing right now in 2023. Uh, but there was a time when I was not. That would have been before 1973. Okay, I was not. There was a time. There was a time when you were not. There will be a time when I am not, in a physical sense. There will be a time when you are not, in a physical sense. It reminds me of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. What does it say about Enoch? He walked with God and he was not because for God took him. So we exist in time and there's a time when Jesus, well Jesus pre-existed even before time. Uh, when we say that we are talking about Jesus's eternality in time past. He always was there was no time at which Jesus was not, because he always was. 
And proof that he always was, uh, was that he was there at the beginning, in the beginning was. Now let's talk about that next word, was. What does was mean? Was means existed. It does not mean that he came to be or became. We see that later in verse 14, right? Look at verse 14 in the prologue, where the word became flesh, or he took on flesh. Philippians 2 reminds us he humbled himself by taking on human flesh. But in this sense, in this case, in the beginning was. He was always there. He was, uh, there was never a time when he was not. Okay, think about that. There was never, there never was when he was not. There never was when he was not. That's from our friend Athanasius, who fought for this truth in the fourth century, and we will talk about him later at some point. We'll, we'll look at some of those things. So this phrase, in the beginning was, is foundational to Christ's deity. And it's been under attack since early on in, in Christianity. It's been under attack, and we'll, we'll get to some of those uh, heretical views here in a little bit. Uh, we understand, too, this is hard to contemplate, okay? It is hard to contemplate eternity past. We live with finite minds, but yet that is the truth of God's word. Next, we see this phrase, what we have in the beginning, was, and we have was the word. So let's talk about the word. Why is Jesus referred to as the word here? I was uh, blessed to attend a, a Christian elementary school when I grew up in Maslin, Ohio, Calvary Christian Academy. And at Calvary Christian Academy, all the students were required to memorize scripture. I memorized Psalm 1 when we were in kindergarten or first grade, for example. Every month we had like a passage. <clears throat> and this passage, John chapter 1, this prologue, was one of those uh, more significant passages that we had to learn. <clears throat> I remember being a kid, and I remember asking the question, why is Jesus referred to as the Word? It just I didn't get that. That didn't make sense to me. I don't recall ever getting an answer to it, but I remember having that, that thought and thinking, why is he called the Word? Um, as a side note, too, parents, I want to remind us of the importance and the significance of Scripture memorization. Uh, scripture memorization is extremely important, and I encourage all of you, if you have children, provide opportunities for your children to memorize and meditate on God's word. <clears throat> it feeds their brain. It feeds their soul. It's not just empty fodder, empty fodder to amuse us while we're trying to fall asleep. It is the word of God. And so I encourage all of us, and adults as well, commit scripture to memory. <clears throat> but as I recalled being confused about why Jesus was referred to as the word, um, I, I recall asking, you know, why, why do we do this? Why is he the word? And I, I really didn't, I don't recall having a good response to that. And so I'd like to discuss that with us this morning, the word specifically, that word logos. Why does John use the Greek word logos to refer to Jesus Christ? It seems there is a lack of consensus of opinion regarding John's reason for using this term to describe Jesus. But we do know several things. First, we know that it refers to Jesus Christ specifically, this word logos. If you look down again at verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, who became flesh? Jesus Christ. 
who dwelt among us, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. The word is referring to Jesus Christ. Secondly, we know for certain that God's choice of this Greek word logos was directed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In other words, John wasn't just going out on a whim and just trying to use, uh, use uh, cultural things and use language from his day uh, to try to make up something. Uh, this was directed specifically by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for re for re for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work. <clears throat> Number three, we know that the word logos is used three times by John. John uses this word three times. He uses it here in the prologue to his gospel account. He also used it in, his, uh, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 which says what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Finally, John uses this word in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13. He refers to Christ as clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. <clears throat> so we know that John uses the word logos at least three times in his writings. We don't know exactly, like I said, there's not consensus on the exact opinion about why that is, but we have some good ideas. Consider John's audience at the time he was writing this. He's uh, dealing with a Greek audience and a Jewish audience. Now, in Greek philosophy, this word logos had significant connotation. There was significant meaning that the Greeks um, attached to the word logos. It had the connotation of reason or of logic. It had the idea of an abstract principle or an abstract force that brought reason and order to the universe. Another connotation is the idea of purpose. <clears throat> so the Greeks took this word logos and to the Greeks it had the idea of purpose or force, order, reason, um, a creative force or a source of wisdom. Now, to the average Greek guy, uh, they might not know all the nuances of what the philosophers were dealing with when they were talking about the word logos, but the average Greek, the man on the street, he would understand logos to refer to one of the most important principles in the universe. So to the Greeks, the word logos was significant to all Greeks. They understood it was a significant term. Uh, later in Neoplatonic philosophy and the Gnostic heresy in the second and third centuries, the Logos was seen as one of many intermediate powers between God and the world. So there was kind of like this ethereal philosophical sense of what this word means to the Greeks. Okay? John, however, takes that, he takes that word, and he gathers he gathers into the person of Christ those qualities that they understood as the logos, the wisdom, the purpose, uh, the logic, and the intent. It expresses the absolute, eternal, and ultimate being of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's other, his other audience, the Jews. For the Jews, there were also connotations involved in the word logos. John likely intends another parallel with Genesis chapter 1 here. <clears throat> 
Let me go back and remind you. John starts his gospel with what three-word phrase? In the beginning. Reminds us of Genesis chapter 1, right? Where's the grade 4, 5, 6 guys that had that, were working on that in Sunday school this morning? Weren't you guys in Genesis 1-1 this morning? Okay. What's it start out? In the beginning. Here, John takes that phrase, and he's, he's getting that into our minds. He's putting the Jewish mind in that context. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the Word. So John likely intends another parallel here with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, God created through his Word. Jesus is the Word of God. The Word is God's expression of divine power and wisdom. So John is working in this pattern. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. <clears throat> How did God create the universe? By his word. He spoke and the world came into existence. How does God reveal himself? Through his word. How did God reveal himself in the Old Testament? Or in other words, how did the Israelites understand God's will and God's purpose? Well, again, by his word. How did the people of God know what pleased God? by his word he told them so you see john is using this and he's getting the jewish mind to understand and go back to uh, creation in the beginning god's word god's revealed purpose jesus and we just we just looked at this in john chapter 5 this morning uh, in sunday school with the high school kids you jesus said to the scribes and pharisees you search the scriptures to learn about eternal life and it is these that testify of me. And so the word reveals God, and Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He shows us what God is like. He is the fullest expression of God's character in all its fullness. And remember what Philip said to Jesus in John chapter 14, just show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus' response to Philip was almost incredulous. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So what does Logos tell us? The word Logos tells us that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word. <clears throat> there are heretics uh, involved in this as well. As I, as I mentioned uh, throughout history, heretics have tried to attack this idea that Jesus was always from the beginning. He always has existed. Uh, they try to um, make the word as something that began to exist at the time that, cre- that the world was created. So a guy named Servetus uh, said that the word began to exist at the time when he was displayed in the creation of the world, as if he did not exist before his power was made known by external operation. Let me say that again. He said that the word began to exist at that time when he was displayed in the creation of the world. What is this doing with Jesus as the eternal pre-existent Son of God? It's destroying that. And we cannot destroy that. That is, that is heresy. Um, <clears throat> it's wrong because if we go back to the word was, <clears throat> was indicates that he already was. He was already there. Jesus was already present. He didn't come into being and then create everything else. And the rest of Scripture points to Christ as the creator and as the eternally existent one anyways. He was always existent uh, with God in eternity past. Well, a guy named Arius came along uh, in the 300s, that would be the 4th century or the the end of the 3rd century. 
Arius came along and said that Jesus Christ was not one with God the Father, but he was instead just created by God and was just a holy man. That's Arius. That was the, uh, uh, his ism became, people following him and believing in that idea that uh, became Arianism. That actually led to the Council of Nicaea. And in 325 A.D., uh, we have this uh, creed that came out of that, uh, that heresy and, that, and that, uh, that argument called the Nicene Creed. Let me just read some of the Nicene Creed to you. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one, subs- being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. So the Nicene Creed came out of this, uh, this conflict with Arius and Arianism. I was recently watching some strange fellows that I found on YouTube. <clears throat> Sarah hates it when I do that. I used to watch Channel 17, but then Channel 17 went away. Uh, so now I find my heretics on YouTube. <laughs> and I found these guys. I think I searched for John chapter 1 or, or the word Jesus something. I forget what I searched for. But I found these guys, and, and they're modern guys, um, in our day and age, basically reiterating this same heresy. Uh, they were misinterpreting John, and they were misinterpreting the rest of Scripture uh, to remove Jesus Christ from eternity past, and simply saying that when it says, in the beginning was the Word, this is not Jesus Christ, this is just God's spoken Word. Well, it is a reference to Jesus Christ, and we see that through Scripture. <clears throat> okay, the next part of the next phrase, I said there were ten, I'm moving on. In the beginning <clears throat> was the Word, and the Word was with God. Let's talk about this. The Word was with God. There is a distinction here that we see in the persons within the Godhead. Um, these are not successive forms of appearance of one person. These are not emanations or manifestations of one person. This should sound familiar to you in a minute. There are three distinct persons who are deity, and they are all three together part of what we refer to as the Trinity. Now, if you recall, we had a conference on the Trinity a couple years ago, didn't we? What was one thing we learned about that? Or what, what was one thing we learned about heretical teachings about God and, the, and the, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? We, had, we learned about this idea of modalism, that some people believe that Jesus is just an emanation or a manifestation of God the Father. Remember our modalism? Remember that? What would, what would we say? When you'd hear those things, you'd hear the analogy of the egg, for example. Okay, the egg has three parts: the yolk, the yolk, the shell, and the uh, what's the other part? The white part. <laughs> okay, all right. Are those, uh, those are three? Those are three different parts. Okay, you can't make an analogy with God with an egg. Okay, that's modalism. That's modalism, Patrick. All right. <clears throat> now we understand God is one, and there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. God is one in being, one in substance, one in nature, while existing as three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So the word was with God. 
Let's talk about the word with, okay? Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18 of the prologue. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Where is he? He is in the bosom of the Father. This idea of with is what I'd like to consider here for a moment. Jesus is in the the bosom of the Father. His constant experience is communion with the Father. He has a community of interest with the Father. He is with the Father. I was trying to figure out a way to illustrate this, like with. We we take it, it's kind of generic, okay? Um, Have you ever encountered someone on an airplane who you know from work or from the community? Okay, we, we were flying last summer and getting on a plane, and here's a coworker of mine sitting on the plane. And he looked up at me and said, hey, Aaron. I said, oh, oh my goodness, this is weird. Like, we're, we're with each other on this plane. But was I really with him? No, not in the sense of with, not in the sense of Jesus being with the Father, okay? I was with my wife. We were stuck in a metal tube with a bunch of other people. But I wasn't with those other people in an intimate or in a sense of being with them in communion. Um, When you go to dinner with when you go with someone to dinner, you could say, "Well, I went, I went with my wife to dinner." Okay, I wasn't with the other people in the restaurant in the close, intimate connection that I have with my wife. We were just in the same room, but not in the sense of with. uh, we, we were at the BMV yesterday trying to get a driver's license, okay? We walked in. There were 70 people in there, okay? I didn't want to be with any of those people, okay? <clears throat> I wanted to get in and get our number and get our license and get out of there, okay? We weren't with those people in that sense. Um, with has this idea of, of close connection and uh, intimate fellowship, and, and we can even consider this as a face-to-face relationship. <clears throat> so think about this as face-to-face or community or communion with the Father. This is Jesus and the Father in the closest, most intimate communion with one another. That's significant. It's not like me being with people on the airplane or with people in the restaurant or with others in the BMV. This is intimate and close. <clears throat> Look at John chapter 17. Let's just jump to that because this gets really good. In Jesus' high priestly prayer. In verse 5, Jesus says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus is, is asking to be back with the Father in glory. There's a, year, there's a sense of yearning here. He has to be back with the Father. And then look in verse 13. Jesus says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
So we have Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Jesus pre-existed. He existed through all of eternity with the Father in close communion and fellowship with each other. But then we see Jesus as the man. If we fast forward to John chapter 17, Jesus the man is anticipating the cross. He's anticipating the agony. He's anticipating the atonement. And he is praying to his, his Father, to God the Father. He's saying, Restore me to the glory that we experienced with each other. But it's not just that. He also prays that he would have us with him. He, he wants us to be in that with uh, relationship, that intimacy with him in verse uh, 23 and 24. I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. So we have this sense of with. It's, it's intimate. It's face to face. Alistair Begg has an incredible, uh, I'll quote Alistair Begg, it's an incredible insight on this, on this, uh, on this uh, passage. He says, the word was towards the Father, and he ceased to be towards the Father in order that men and women whose backs are toward, whose backs are toward the Father may be brought to know him as their Savior. Let me read that again because I messed it up a little bit. The word was towards the Father. Jesus was face to face with the Father. And he ceased to be toward the Father in order that men and women whose backs are toward the Father may be brought to know him as their Savior. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. Do you know what that phrase is at the end of that verse? Now we see dimly as in the mirror, but then face to face. We will one day see Jesus Christ face to face. We will be with him one day as he is with the Father. It's an incredible word, right? With. Okay. I'm running out of time. Let's move on a little bit. The word was God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. I remember several years ago, the Jehovah's Witnesses came to my house and knocked on my door, and I entertained them for a little bit. I didn't want to be rude, but at the same time, I don't want to, you know, debate, you know, the nonsense. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, I, I, I debated them on this, on, this, uh, on this phrase. In the beginning, the word was God. I said, Jesus is God. They said, no, Jesus is a God. Their New World Translation of the Bible literally reads, he was a God. Folks, this is a heretical error based on a misunderstanding of Greek grammar and twisting the words. The Jehovah's Witnesses fail to read the scripture's numerous explicit uh, assertions of the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is referred to as deity numerous times in the New Testament. And further, scripture asserts divine names, divine attributes, divine works, and divine honor to Jesus Christ. The Unitarians and the Mormons also um, have deviant beliefs about Jesus Christ that uh, move away from Orthodox Christianity in this area. Um, they believe Jesus was created. Uh, they believe he was not co-eternal uh, with God. Have you ever heard of a na- guy named Marcion? <clears throat> Marcion, uh, described as, a, as the most infamous heretic in the early Christian church, uh, he taught that God had sent Jesus who was a new alien God and was distinct from the vengeful God of the Old Testament who, cre- who had created the world. 
And the Gnostics held that there are two gods, the supreme hidden god and a lesser malevolent divinity that was created by the superior divinity. So again, in all of these cases and these cults and these false religions, we see the divinity of Jesus Christ being attacked. We have a foundation in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. <clears throat> well, I think I should stop right there. We're going to uh, end that for now, and we will pick up next time with some of these things. But I want to go back to the question that I asked you at the beginning. Who is Jesus to you? We, we ought to not just gloss over this as we... Um, as it's comfortable to sit here and, and participate in a sermon or participate in a service and not answer that question for ourselves. Do I, do I really believe in this God or this Jesus that, that Scripture describes? Scripture presents Jesus to us as the eternal, pre-existent, uh, uh, co-eternal God. He is divinity and he is God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the word was God. I hope you believe that. I hope you understand that Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Jesus is not a, a Jesus Christ superstar. Okay? Andrew Lloyd Webber is a terrible theologian Okay, because he, he, he's not a superstar. Jesus is not some uh, good teacher, as we talked about last week in Sunday school. He's not a hippie Jesus who just wants love and peace for everybody. He is, the, he is God. He is divinity. And we ought to know him that way, and that's the Jesus that we must believe in for salvation. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you, cry out to him and turn to him, and he will save you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the truth of this uh, very short and succinct uh, one verse at the beginning of this great epistle, or this great gospel of, according to the Apostle John. We praise you for the truth of this. We praise you for the foundation of it. And Lord, we pray that we would not just uh, look at this as, as an academic exercise, as a biography of a nice teacher or a, or a hippie who wants everyone to love each other. But we pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus Christ for who he really is, the true Son of God. We thank you, Lord, for uh, these foundational truths. Again, we thank you for... Uh, your servant John, the, gospel, or the, the, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. <clears throat> and we pray, Lord, that we would, uh, that we would accept these truths and that we would uh, live, live with them and live for them. We love you, Lord, and we pray that we would go out this week and, and uh, be a light to our community wherever we find ourselves. And we just thank you and praise you for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>